Before we get started with today's show, I'm here to tell you about Brez Coffee Company, made by gamers for gamers right here on the Gulf Coast in Pensacola, Florida. Do you like lighter medium roast? Then try the Necromedium Holy Grail Light or Stamina Boost. Or if you're like me and prefer darker roast, try the Critical Dark or the Coup Slayer Mocha Roast. But what if you can't pick just one? Then try one of their specialty sample packs, perfect for an all-night gaming or in the case of my fellow filmmakers, an all-night editing session. Forget about all the crappy coffee you've been buying at the grocery store and head on over to BrezCoffeeCo.com. Use the promo code DDE at checkout to get 10% off your order. Have you ever thought to yourself after listening to this podcast, why didn't Derek ask this question? Or why didn't he ask that question? I know I certainly have. Well, you get the chance to do that if you sign up for my Patreon at patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast. You get the chance to ask guests of the show a question. If you're a fan of the top five list, you get the chance to vote on what the topic will be. You also get early access to episodes, accessibility to my film scripts, and so much more. And you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast. And we want to thank our patrons, Tim Spivey and Shannon Williams. Thanks so much for your continued contributions. And now on with the show. Welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, where every week I take a look inside the world of film and television with those who have lived it and experienced it. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and for those who are watching the video version of the podcast, you see that made a couple of little changes to the studio. Uh, if you follow me on social media, you've seen that uh, kind of a month-plus project that I've been working on has been remodeling the, the studio that I record all of my podcasts in, this Nerd Cave Retro, anything podcast related I do in this room. And it was really overdue if you saw the photos. I mean, it's it was kind of junky with you know my computer desk stashed in the corner of the room, there being boxes and just cables and everything piled everywhere. This table that all my equipment sitting on was just right in the middle of the room, so... Took the, the week off of work after the 12-game homestand ended a couple of weeks ago. And that was kind of my week-long project was just to transform this room into what it is currently. And as you can see, I've added some uh, some artwork or some pictures on the, the wall behind me. I still have the sound panels all around the room, but... I knew the the aesthetic needed to change a little bit. I wanted to keep the brick. I really like the brick quite a bit, but wanted to give a little bit more you know, life and personality to the walls whenever I do these podcasts. So uh, just a heads up for those that will be watching the video version or do it on a regular basis. Um, I did record several interviews before I made the switch. So... If you see that, you know, during this opening portion of the show, there's these two pictures in the background, and then you watch the interview portion and it looks like it used to, that's why. So it might look a little weird, and for some of you, it may not be that big a deal. I just, I know I personally notice little things like that when I'm watching videos. So that's the explanation as to why the video might look a little different than. Uh, you've seen in the past 
and will probably look that way for a few weeks. It's crazy because I've done enough interviews now to really be set through the end of October and a lot of really, really good conversations, a lot of behind the scenes business discussion as far as uh, film goes, the business side of film that you'll be hearing about over the next few weeks. And the conversation you'll be hearing today, I really was looking forward to this when it was booked. And that is with cinematographer Seamus Tierney, who's been working in the industry for a while and most recently was cinematographer for the uh, Mighty Ducks Game Changer series on Disney+. Plus. So it was cool to, to get to pick his brain about that and you know, what, what's the process of what a director of photography goes through when they're hired onto a project and getting to kind of pick his brain about what was his inspiration behind the way they filmed specifically the hockey scenes of that series the way that he did. And just getting to talk about a side of the industry that I don't really get to uh, to talk about all that often. But that'll be coming up a little bit later on in the show. But before we get to that, I did want to touch on CinemaCon. And it, it recently wrapped, I believe it wrapped on the 25th or the 26th of August. I can't quite remember off the top of my head. But it was this big convention where some pretty big news stories came out. And I, I just wanted to touch on a few that really stood out to me. The big one being that we finally officially have the title of the fourth Matrix movie. It will be called The Matrix Resurrections and will be released in theaters and on HBO Max December 22nd of 2021. Uh, Co-written and directed by Lana Wachowski, who, of course, you know, is uh, one of the Wachowskis who directed and wrote the, um, the Matrix trilogy from back in the day. I was a teenager when the original Matrix came out, and I did not see it in theaters, but I knew of the hype behind this movie and hearing how groundbreaking it was with its visual effects. And when I watched it on DVD for the first time, my mind was just, just blown away by the visuals. The, the story, I thought, was the concept was brilliant with... You know, the, the world we live in is not real. And it kind of made you think, well, could something like this happen in you know, the next thousand years, couple of thousand years? Who knows? I, I, I love sci-fi movies that make you think on what could possibly happen in the future. And The Matrix was no exception to that. Of course, we all know about the bullet time effect, the, you know, the, the slow motion uh, action sequences that we know is almost being overdone in a way, but that was all originated from the matrix. So hearing that they were going to revisit that world kind of got me excited. And I know the sequels have very mixed reviews. I don't dislike them as much as some people do. Do I think they're as good as the original? No, like to me, the Matrix one is in a tier all in itself when it comes to you know, groundbreaking visual effects when it comes to movies of that time, or at least it's in that upper tier of sci-fi film. And then the sequels I put a bit below that. Still visually great. I didn't like the stories as much, 
but I can think of far worse movies than The Matrix Reloaded and Revolution. So I'm really excited that they're going back and revisiting that world. The fact that they're bringing back both Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss. I am disappointed they're not bringing back Lawrence Fishburne. I'm hoping that he may have some type of a cameo as a surprise to the fans. I know, I believe he came out and said he wasn't asked to come back. I could be wrong in saying that, but I, who knows? I mean, he, he could be saying that to fool the audience. Who knows? But I'll definitely be there when it's released. I do want to see it in theaters. Um, I know HBO Max is much more convenient, but I feel like The Matrix is something that's worth watching in the theater. And I'm very curious to see what they do with the storyline. And from the footage that they showed at CinemaCon, it's not online, but I've read several descriptions. And that being that Neo is back in the real world or the Matrix. And he has no recollection of his previous life. And he even meets Trinity at a coffee shop and they kind of have a vague memory of, you know, have we seen each other before? And then it goes into, you know, all the action that we expect from that franchise. So really looking forward to it. I wish they would release that trailer online, but I'm sure we'll get one fairly soon because the movie's coming out in, you know, three months. It's crazy to think we're now in September. I'm still thinking it's August, but uh, yeah, it's only, only a couple of months away. The, the other stories that really stood out to me, the other one being Top Gun Maverick, which found out today as I'm recording this that it has been pushed back yet again to May 27th, 2022. They showed the first, I believe it was 13 minutes of the movie, and it was pretty well received. And Top Gun is a not-so-guilty-pleasure movie of mine. It's Do I think it's one of the best movies of all time? No. Is it one of my favorite movies of all time? Yes, it would be. If I made a top 10 list of my all-time favorite movies, then Top Gun would definitely be on it. I think it's the perfect summer movie because it's got action, it's got romance, it's got practically everything you'd want in, in a summer blockbuster. I still enjoy watching it to this day. I was... A little shocked that they made a sequel after all these years, especially with Tom Cruise coming back. I'm I'm excited to see it. it. It's unfortunate that it was pushed back yet again, but with COVID and the Delta variant and everything that's been going on, I I get it. But we'll. Uh, it's crazy because in 2020, when it was originally supposed to be released, it was one of my most anticipated movies. Then when it got moved to 2021. It became one of my most anticipated movies of that year. Now that it's moved to 2022, it's one of my most anticipated movies of 2022. So for three years in a row, it's one of my most anticipated movies, which is kind of crazy to say. And then the other one I wanted to talk about was The Batman, you know, uh, directed by Matt Reeves, starring Robert Pattinson as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, I believe, comes out March of next year. Supposedly, the footage they showed... Uh, looks very dark and very grounded. I'm curious to see if they go too dark with it, but I I read that there was something that happens 
in what was shown that got people really excited for a sequel. I don't think we're going to get a trailer until DC Fandom, which I believe is sometime in October. I could be mistaken in that, but I, I'm curious to see what they do. I mean, I'm always, my curiosity is always piqued when there's a new Batman or a new take on Batman, new iteration of Batman. And this won't be any exception. And people still give Robert Pattinson crap for the Twilight movies, but after seeing him in the lighthouse, I buy him as a dark Bruce Wayne and a dark Batman. And yeah, I think the rest of the cast is is pretty good too. You got you got Andy Serkis as uh, Alfred, so we'll uh, we'll see what happens with that. But th- those were the three main talking points that I wanted to just kind of give my brief thoughts on. And you know, I think Dune looks really good. They showed footage for the um, the Godfather prequel, not Godfather, The Sopranos. What am I talking about? Um, I never watched The Sopranos. I know it's really popular. One day I'll sit down and watch it. I don't know when that will be, but I know a lot of people are excited for the prequel, so we'll see what happens with that. But and CinemaCon sounded fun. I hope one day that I can get to go to that. I think it'd be really fun. It'd be fun to do like a like a live reaction to, you know, like a Warner Brothers event or a Paramount event. I think that'd be awesome. That would be really fun. But uh, now we're going to turn the show over to my conversation with cinematographer slash director of photography, Seamus Tierney. He, as I mentioned before, worked on the Mighty Ducks Game Changer series it was great to just pick his brain about what he sees visually and get into a cinematographer's mind and really get into visual storytelling. So hopefully you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Seamus Tierney. Welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience podcast, and this week it's my pleasure to welcome cinematographer Seamus Tierney to the show. Seamus, how are you? Good. How are you, man? Fantastic, fantastic. I've been uh, looking forward to this conversation now for you know the last couple of weeks since we touched base. You know, through email, looking at your IMDb and your impressive run that you've had, and it's not very often that I get to talk pure cinematography on the show. So I'm, when you accepted the invite, I was, I was really excited. So thank you for taking the time. Yeah. It's my favorite subject. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) So uh, before we get started on some of your projects that you've worked on in the past, what was it that initially made you want to get into the world of filmmaking? Because since I've started doing this podcast, I've learned that there's not really a set way to do it. Almost everyone has a unique journey to get into the film industry. So what was it that made you want to get into it? Yeah, I think from a pretty young age, uh, my parents kind of encouraged us to watch a lot of movies. We, you know, went to the movies. Uh, I grew up in Hawaii and Australia and we can get into that. But, um, you know, when I was a kid and it wasn't even that long ago, but uh, in Hawaii, it was like, you could go to the movies during the day for like 50 cents and uh, you could get a, a public bus all the way around the island for 25 cents. So for me, for 75 cents, I could have a whole day of, uh, you know, 
ride the bus, watch a movie, ride the bus home. So it was uh, kind of a no brainer for uh, filling a summer day or a weekend or something. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of just became enamored with films from a young age. Uh, you know, Spielberg, of course, and all those, uh, you know, adventure movies. And then, yeah, and then um, uh, kind of when I was about, I don't know, 13 or 14, I, I, I decided that's what I want to do. I want to tell stories visually. And so it's been a journey since then. Was there a specific film growing up? You mentioned Spielberg. Were there, was there a specific yeah. film that made you say, okay, this, this is what I want to do? Yeah, there was a couple. Um, the ones that come to mind whenever I think about it, um, there was a director named Roland Joffrey. Uh, he did The Killing Fields. He did another movie called The Mission. Um, both of those movies were hugely influential for me. And, and I saw them pretty young. And I realized that you could sort of convey an emotion uh, or an idea visually with a lot of power. And I wanted to sort of try and be a part of that storytelling process. Uh, that, and I, I also saw, weirdly enough, I saw Yojimbo, the Kurosawa film on, a, on like PBS one night, really late as a teenager. And I was like, uh, just blown away at, at the, the use of the camera and the way it told the story. And, uh, and you know, that, that, that Akira definitely, you know, had a lot of influence on filmmakers that I grew up with, like Spielberg and Lucas. Uh, so I could see where that all came from when I saw some, uh, some of his other work too. So, yeah, those are the three that I kind of come to mind when anyone asks that question. When you bring up a great point that you can tell stories from a visual standpoint, obviously you have, you know, your actors, your actresses that are conveying the emotions, but it's also all about the camera movement and the placement of the camera that really, you know, adds that extra layer of the storytelling that, you know, I didn't really even think about because you know, I was a huge fan of movies as well growing up, but it wasn't something that I really thought about until I started taking classes and then working on sets and really seeing how, you know, director of photographies work with the directors and work with the actors on set to also tell that story from a visual standpoint. It just adds a whole new layer. Yeah, it totally does. It's like the subtext of, uh, of the idea of the emotion that you're trying to convey. And I think that's the thing that I try and always weave into the stuff I shoot where it's like, you could just shoot it as a normal, like, you know, wide shot over, over, you know what I mean? I like to sort of put a little bit of intent or thought behind the shots that we choose, director and I, um, just to try and add, like you said, another layer. Because because you, you, you know, you can walk out of a movie and you can say, oh, that was the most beautiful movie ever. But it's better to have somebody walk out of a movie and say that was a great movie and not necessarily, you know, really be able to put their finger on why, but, but if it's done with like good sound design, great acting, good production design, great photography, you know, the score and whatnot, and it all just kind of comes together. That's kind of what you're looking to achieve rather than somebody just saying, oh, that was beautiful. You know what I mean? Because uh, it's fleeting. Beauty is fleeting. <laughs> no, absolutely. But you remember the really good ones. No, absolutely. Yeah. So kind of walk me through the process of what a cinematographer or director of photography does. So say you get hired to work on a project, what do you do from there? Okay, so 
uh, yeah, you know, uh, I get sent the scripts. Uh, I either get the job, I don't get the job. I usually interview with the director and the and producers usually. Cause you know, again, it's, it's filmmaking is not an easy undertaking or adventure. It's tough, you know, it's long hours. You're gonna be with this group of people for three to four months. And so you got to figure out how to get along, first of all. <laughs> uh, but yeah, in terms of the process, we sit down and basically for about a month, we talk through the whole script. What I like to do, you know, we either shot list or storyboard, depending on how the directors or director likes to work. Um, I look at that process as creating a dialogue and a blueprint uh to tell me what the story is and what the idea or emotion that that particular director is trying to convey and then i interpret that visually and so i'll bounce we'll bounce ideas off of each other about how to shoot something how much coverage do we need you know um what's the best way to visually convey the idea or the emotion that's written on that page you know what i mean mm -hmm. and then you know obviously it gets it gets more technical as you get closer and closer. And then after the, after those initial conversations, then I start delving into how am I going to technically achieve this? Meaning what kind of equipment do I need? But I try not to think about that just in the beginning. I try to think, try to have like a blank canvas and like the dreaming stage, you know, where just like, you know, tell director, don't limit yourself. Just how would you, how do you see this? Close your eyes, mind's eye doesn't matter how we can, how we're going to do it just yet. Like, do we need cranes or drones or whatever? Don't think about that yet. You know, just talk it through because that's where you're, you're going back and forth and you're sort of whittling down the idea of what you want your film to look like. You know what I mean? And then as you get closer, then I have to start stepping in and saying, okay, well, what equipment do I need to achieve this shot that we've designed? You know what I mean? Or what should we, what camera should we use? What lenses should we use? You know? Uh, used to be what film stock, and now it's like more what what sensor do you want to use? You know, yeah, that's the the basic beginnings. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that you said that you don't automatically limit yourself by you know what equipment am I going to need? Because if you think if you're having a meeting with a director and you're thinking, okay, well, I only have access to X, Y, and Z, that really limits what you're going to do. And you know, you could think of this really cool idea and like, oh, there's you know, other there's other ways to pull it off besides oh well I don't have I don't have a crane so I can't do it yeah. you know there there are other yeah, ways no. you can make it happen so yeah totally and I I kind of love that stuff too to be honest with you like that um, necessity is the mother of invention like oh you want that shot and like you know some people might say oh well, we can't do that without this piece of equipment but that's that's rarely the case there's like there's so many. Uh, when you get you know great crew people and you just get a bunch of people together you can just come up with an idea of how to execute a shot without this fancy piece of equipment potentially you know and some like weird you know it's a way whether it's pulleys or a stick you know with a camera on the end of it there's always a way to get a something close to what you had in your mind's eye whether it be with the you know two hundred fifty thousand dollar piece of equipment or you know uh, uh, a, a plank of wood with two to people holding it on either end and, you know, poor man's steady camp, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I kind of love all that stuff, to be honest. Well, that's the great thing about filmmaking is, you know, now that I've, because I've been on a couple of sets for short films that we filmed locally uh, here where I live. 
And seeing how things work behind the scenes and how certain shots are pulled off where you get, you know, a couple of grips to hold a piece of equipment for the DP to get the shot that they want. You know, just seeing that, seeing people come together like that is my favorite part of filmmaking. I make this joke on the show every now and then that I'm not a very sociable person, but I love the collaboration of filmmaking and what it takes to make a film happen because it, it takes a village to make a movie and just seeing things like that happen and become reality and then you see the final product there are very few more rewarding feelings in my opinion i totally agree that's to that's like i would say that's 99 percent of the reason why i do this job it's like i i don't tell my agent this but i would definitely do this for free I would do it for food. You know, if they just wanted to not pay me and, and pay me in food, I would still do this job. <laughs> hey, food's a good payment. Yeah. Food yeah. is a very good payment. Yeah, yeah. No. And, and I've learned that too, with, you know, working on, you know, a couple of sets that I have. And then I directed my first short uh, a couple of years ago. Nice. Food, food can, can go a long way when you have, oh, uh, you bet. when you have long days on set, you want to, you want to keep the crew happy and the way to keep them happy is usually through food. So yeah, totally feed them well. And they'll be, they'll be a little less uh, grumpy. Yeah, no, for sure. But <laughs> to, to backtrack a little bit. So you decide that this is what you want to do. You want to be a visual filmmaker. You want to work in cinematography. Where do you go from there? Do you go off to college? Cause you mentioned you lived in uh, Australia and Hawaii. Like where, where were you living at the time that, you decided this and then what was your next step from there okay so i grew up like i said in hawaiian australia uh i was in australia for a while and i sort of did what a lot of australians do they go on kind of a walkabout um so i i traveled the world for a couple of years after i got out of school and um eventually wound up back in uh new on the east coast of america new jersey new york and uh, I had no idea how to get into film. I knew that I wanted to, and I knew that I wanted to do it in New York as opposed to Los Angeles, because I liked at the time the films and the ideas that were coming out of New York. They were a little bit more uh, independent and a little bit more gritty. Uh, so a, a, a friend, the guy, I was working in a coffee shop, and this guy that I was working with had cut out this little piece of paper from the Village Voice that said, film PAs wanted and a, and a number. I didn't even know what a film PA was. <clears throat> so I call the number, I go in, I get the job. They pay me like 50 bucks a week, 50 bucks a week. <laughs> so they like, I think I was like an intern, you know, which I think is, a, you can't do that anymore. But uh, back then they gave me, and they gave me like a, a, a roll of subway tokens, which don't even exist anymore either. So I was a, I was a, uh, like an office PA for the first couple of weeks of this production. We weren't in, we weren't shooting yet. So um, then when we started shooting this very small movie, it was called Peroxide Passion, directed by a guy named Monty Diamond, who was uh, Luc Besson's um, location manager or production manager or something. Anyways, uh, so we get, we get to the on-set part and they were like, okay, well, you can set up craft service. So I would set up the craft service and then I would, I would watch these, this, these groups of uh, these other guys, these technicians working, the grip electrics. And I was like, I was watching them for the first couple of days and I was seeing what they were doing. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. And like, they would, they were short staffed because it was a low budget film. So they'd get on the walk here, they'd yell out, they're like, oh, bring me this, this, this. And so I would remember, I'd like figure out what they were asking for and I would go grab it and run and bring it to them. You know what I mean? So it's slowly, and by the end of that job, um, 
one of the the gaffer was like, I want that guy to work for me. He's not doing craft service anymore. He come come with me. And so it kind of just went from there. And I and I and I started working for that guy, Tom Hamilton. And he took me under his wing. And then I started become I was an electrician for a long time, light set lighting guy. I did that for about um in total seven years. So I worked my way up. I was an electrician and became a best boy and then a gaffer. Uh but in the meantime, I started shooting because I knew I wanted to be a DP. So I, I would, and I would bug the hell out of every DP that I ever worked for. I would just say, why are you doing that? What are you doing over there? What's this? You know? And like, some of them were cool. And some of them were just like, shut up and go get me that light. But, uh, you know, I, it was a handful of really nice guys and, and girls that were like, you know, te- like break it down for me and like help me out. So uh, about, I don't know, maybe four years into that, I started shooting, um, short films for grad students at Columbia University and at NYU because at Columbia they didn't have a cinematography program I I still don't think they do but anyway so the grad students at Columbia they had a really strong writing program so they had lots of really good scripts but they had no DPs so they would hire out and we would shoot they'd want to shoot 16 millimeter and so I would take the money that I was earning as an electrician and a lighting guy and I would say, look, let's shoot on film, but let's shoot 35 and I'll pay the difference between the, what the cost of shooting 16 to 35. And that way I was building up my reel, my show reel, all with the intention of applying to grad school at the American Film Institute, which I did. And uh, I think I got accepted in 2001, maybe. I think, yeah, 2001, 2002, maybe. Uh, and so I got accepted into AFI and then I went out to... California and I went to AFI for about two and a half, three years. And uh, um, I literally was, I got hired to shoot my first movie when, before I'd graduated, I had to stop filming the day of our graduation and go graduate and then come back and keep shooting that night. (laughs) Yeah. And it just kind of went from there. That's awesome. So you truly worked your way up, you know, you started as a PA and then but you, I think it was really cool that you would pick everyone's brain. Like, why are you doing this? How are you supposed to do this? Why are you doing it that yeah. way? That that's exactly what you should do. You know, that yeah, the I best was like a sponge. <laughs> well, that's the best way to learn it. It's interesting that you did all of that before you went to school. So it's almost like you had that preconceived knowledge while you were in school. Do you, do you feel like that helped you it, when you oh, were in school? Definitely, definitely. Because this especially going to uh if you're going to go to undergrad it might be different but for me and who i am i i needed the the practical hands-on learning as opposed to reading something in a book uh just because that's the way my mind works and i need to get my hands dirty and, and figure it out and see it and you know lighting i was i was i'm just fascinated by lighting because it, it is it is infinite in its possibilities you can there's 16 million ways to light a scene you know, and there's, it's just, it, it, it still blows me away to this day, like shine a light off this piece of fabric and it creates this kind of type of quality of light anyways. So that was always something that I really wanted to try and get as close to mastering, even though I don't think you can ever really master it. You can get good at it, but you know, it's always going to throw something new at you. But I, I knew I, I wanted to have that knowledge before I started to shoot. Um, and the reason why I decided to go to grad school was that at that point it allowed me to stop working because I worked so much. I worked, you know, like six, seven days a week for six years straight, you know, seven years straight. And 
in order to make the jump from a gaffer to a cinematographer, I knew that I had to cut one off. It, you could, I couldn't have feet and uh, foot in both worlds. You know, at least I didn't think I could. Um, so I needed to stop and go to grad school and do nothing but study cinematography for two and a half, three years, which is great. But to answer your question more pointedly is that, yes, I think the knowledge that I had of onset knowledge going into grad school helped me immensely because I could fast track uh, those things and concentrate more on storytelling and how to tell a story visually, not, not necessarily from the lighting, but you know, uh, camera movement, camera placement, uh staging um yeah yeah no and i i totally get where you're coming from because you know i'm much more of a visual learner than i am with you know a textbook you i can remember when i was in college i was reading about you know, how to edit and i wasn't really grasping the concept of it but once i sat down at a computer and they're like okay this is what you're supposed to do i'm like oh okay this is this is pretty easy I mean, yeah. I, I want to say easy because I don't want to downplay editing, but it was much easier for me to pick that up from the yeah. visual standpoint. So that that's really cool that because you know you hear most everyone went to school first and then went out into the the work field, but you doing the opposite is is is, is pretty fascinating to me because you you were doing what you wanted to do, but you still felt the importance to go to school, and I, I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then also some folks that I went to school with, like, once they got out, they still had to start further down the rung. And they had to, like, some of them had to go into lighting. Some of them had to become camera assistants. It's like, but I got I got to kind of skip that, you know, a little bit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And I'm with but you. everyone on, has their own path. You know? Yeah. And I'm with you on the lighting, too. It still fascinates me to this day that there's so many yeah. combinations in it. You can make a slight little turn and you're like oh yeah, my god yeah. that's that's exactly what i wanted so yeah yeah i look at like even this in my room down here i like you know oh look now i'm all silhouetted against the background all yeah right, now i'm in half light you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> no that's awesome it never ends yeah. yeah for sure so uh i do want to talk about one of your specific projects one of your more recent ones that was you were the cinematographer for the mighty ducks game changer series on yeah. disney plus I was, like most people of my generation, a big fan of the Mighty Ducks franchise. So when I found out that the series was coming out and that, you know, like Emilio Estevez was coming back, they were bringing back some of the original cast, you know, I was geeked up about it. But watching it from a cinematic storytelling standpoint, I really enjoyed it. And I wanted to ask you specifically, uh, were you aware of the Mighty Ducks popularity you know, back in the nineties before you signed on for this? Yeah. You know, I definitely saw the first movie when I was a kid, I, you know, having grown up in Hawaii and Australia, we didn't have a lot of exposure to hockey <laughs> or ice skating. Um, but I definitely saw the movies when I was a kid. Um, and I knew that, that it had this like, tremendous uh uh fan base so um i was super excited to be a part of it uh for the reboot and i'm plus i mean emilio estevez i love emilio estevez you know <laughs> uh who is great by the way who's really awesome dude uh yeah so i was super excited to be asked to do it um and you know uh 
I had just finished a film with Steve Brill, who is the uh, creator of the Mighty Ducks sort of franchise. You know, he wrote the first one and he, he directed the, uh, maybe, he, I don't know if he directed any of the movies. He might have. Um, but he definitely wrote that. He, that's his, like, you know, intellectual property. And so we just finished doing um, Hubie Halloween for Adam Sandler and Netflix. So mm-hmm. uh, he, we had finished that and he said, hey, I've got, I'm doing the reboot for Mighty Duck. Do you want to come and shoot the show? And I said, look, I don't really, I'm not really a big TV sh- person shooter, even though, even though now I'm, my eyes are open and like TV is like so great now. But I was like, oh no, I'm an artist. I only do films, you know. But uh, I've since changed my tune because there's some really good quality TV out there. And they, they wanted Mighty Ducks to look like a 10-part uh, sports movie. Do you know what I mean? Like a, they wanted a very specific cinematic look. And that was the sort of challenge they gave me. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So I said, yes. Yeah. And yes, for sure. <laughs> Something that I did also want to ask you specifically about the series I thought the way that the hockey specific scenes when the games were going on, I think the way they were shot was extremely well done. What was kind of your inspiration or how did you come up with how that looked and how did you work with the, with the director of the show about how those scenes specifically were going to look? Yeah. So again, Steve Brill is a huge hockey fan. So he was adamant about us having, getting the hockey right and really I think what he pinpointed was that he wanted it to be visually as real and and you were able to follow the puck and the, and like the, the gameplay hockey is fast, very fast. It's a very fast moving sport, even just watching it on TV. um, You know, they just put cameras around and they follow that puck and it's just fast. But I wanted to, along with Steve and we had a great, um, We had an amazing uh, sort of hockey expert, uh, Coach Dave. Oh, I'm not going to remember his last name. He was awesome, though. Coach Dave, what's your last name? Anyways, I'll I'll, I'll think of it. But uh, so I worked closely with him and he he and I and and the directors of the episodes would come up with uh, plays and then ways to cover them. Originally, uh, I had this little like, I, I wanted them to build me this uh, scale model rink and I was going to shoot it with like a lipstick camera, but we never, we COVID hit and we never got around to it. We had so many other things to do, but that was my original idea. I was going to shoot all the plays and sort of make what we call animatics, you know, like visual uh, moving storyboards, uh, maybe for next season, but we can talk about that in a minute. Uh, so yeah, basically to answer your question, we would figure it out all ahead of time. Um, and then, you know, walk the kid, the kids would train with uh, the coaches on the moves and the stuff. And we, and then they would also train with doubles and stunt people uh, for when we needed stunts to be, uh, to replace the kids. Um, and then as far as camera, we had, we had a pretty extensive testing period about how to shoot the hockey. And I went through a bunch of like, from the top notch, like sort of technical way to do it down to the bottom of the barrel, like, you know, kitchen sink, what's the indie way of doing it? And, uh, you know, a couple of those were like, we put actual camera dollies on the ice and we had guys pushing the dollies with operators and fluid heads. 
And then we tried that same setup with um, gyro heads, you know, like uh, Ronins and Movies. And, uh, and then we, we had a couple of rigs where the kids would be like on a platform with like a pole in front of them. And they'd have, uh, we had uh, Teflon and they just have their um, socks on so they could slide back and forth and look like they were going. And then a cameraman would, or would sit on the, um, the front and operate, you know? Uh, but in the end, my favorite was really just a camera operator handheld either on these little like uh, wheelbarrow type things we made with like little, again, little Teflon uh, or Kevlar, Teflon um, uh, Kevlar, I think it was maybe little um, platforms, right? Like a, almost like a skate, but, but um, like a disc. And right. they would just sit on there and then, you know, Thank goodness we were up in Canada because all of my dolly grips were almost everybody on the crew were they like born on skates. So they would just get out there and be like whip around like it was nothing, you know, and like I kind of made the requirement that my operators had to know how to ice skate and the technicians had to know how to be uh, proficient in ice skating. And they all were because they're all Canadian, you know, it's like a national pastime. (laughs) (laughs) So there was nobody who did not skate except me uh so anyways we like again we had all these crazy ideas of like the high-tech way to do it but in the end my favorite to be honest was the the simplest just uh an operator with a camera on their shoulder handheld because what that did was everything else where you had a fluid head or a or a remote head they wouldn't be able to react fast enough to where the puck was going you needed a human's eye on that lens to go boom there it is boom up to this kid's face, boom, down to the hockey. You know what I mean? It just, you had to be that, you had to be that in it with the camera in order to capture it. So that was a nice lesson to learn. We learned that about halfway through the first episode. We're like, throw away all these fancy toys. Let's keep it simple, you know? It's amazing how that works sometimes that you think of all these complex things to do, but sometimes it's just the simplest things work. And it, it makes me think of, you know, like, because uh, I, I work also for a minor league baseball team we have here in town. And, you know, because we, we're kind of clued in on that, you know, some sports might go to robotic cams as far as like baseball mm-hmm. and other sports. But I don't think you can totally do that. And your story says exactly why, because you still have to have that human element of knowing when to whip around to get the puck or whip around to get the baseball or basketball, whatever the case may be. So yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's really cool because, you know, as, as I was watching the series and the hockey sequences specifically, I kept thinking to myself, how did they do that? You know, how, how, <laughs> how did they make it look this good? And now I know. So no, thank you for sharing yeah. that. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, we did, we did have some toys sometimes like we yeah. had a, a, you know, we had a techno crane, which, which really was a more of a time, um, it, it, it allowed us to get through our days faster, but that was not really for a lot of action stuff. That was more for coverage, you know, cause it's like shooting on ice is like shooting in the sand or in water. Things just move slow. You know, it's slow to move equipment around and the kids just want to ice skate, you know, <laughs> it's like, like, it's like hurting cats. So these kids are like, you know, they're 14 years old and and they get out on the ice and all they want to do is just slap the puck and, you know, tackle each other and, you know, like have fun. And, and we're trying to, you know, we're trying to, we're all doing a job and like trying to get the days and, you know, but we made it work, I think. 
Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But um, as we start to wrap up here, I did want to ask you, uh, what are some other projects that you have coming up that you're currently working on? Yeah, so um, I'm doing a little comedy special for Netflix in a couple of weeks here for a woman named Catherine Cohen. Uh, and then I, we really were going to start prep with, um, with uh, uh, Mighty Ducks 2. Season 2 is coming. Uh, so we're gonna, gonna, they're going to start consulting on that about uh, where we're going to shoot it. And if we have to rebuild some stuff, like some sets, or do we want to improve the sets and make them a little easier to work with? Or basically, what did we learn from last season that we can improve on? And I think, to your point, I think we can make the hockey even better. I'm going to try and make the hockey this, ter- this season like even more concise and, and just more visceral, I think. I don't know how I'm going to do it yet, but I'm going to come up with some, again, cheap way to do it. <laughs> Easy way. I like that word visceral. That's good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what is one piece of advice that you could give uh, to an aspiring filmmaker? Yeah. I mean, watch movies, study movies, uh, and just shoot, 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 shoot as much as you can just be cr- creating content. Even if you think it's bad, you'll learn from your mistakes, you know, just keep shooting, always be shooting is what I say. Absolutely. And last question before we get out of here, do you have any website or social media you'd like to plug so the listeners can follow you? Um, Yeah, you can go on to my Instagram. It's, uh, what is it? SeamusT.DP, I think. Uh, I hardly ever go on there, so it's pretty bad. But uh, I could send you a link. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Fantastic. Well, Seamus, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. This was great. Derek, I appreciate it, man. Thanks again to Seamus Tierney for that awesome conversation. Be sure to follow him on Instagram and check out his website to find out what he'll be up to next. And if you want to check out myself and my podcast on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. If you want to subscribe to the show, I'm on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast for free. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. And if you could, please leave a review. The more reviews I get, the more visible I become to the podcasting public. You can also find video versions of the show on YouTube. Just search for Derek Diamond and you can find all the shows there. I'm also on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. If you want early access to episodes, the opportunity to ask guests of my show a question, vote on the monthly top five list. Everyone loves the top fives. If you want to contribute to the show, I'll probably add some more stuff in the coming months now that my schedule has freed up a little bit. So if you want to sign up for just as little as $2 a month, $2 a month gets you early access to episodes and also gets you early access to the monthly watch-along shows that I do, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the original 1990 movie. Most recently, I watched the first episode of the Loki series, and I'll be watching Clerks later this month with my friend Thomas Carter Rochester. So if you want to be a part of that, just head on over to patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast. And of course, thank you to my close friends, Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. You can check out all their music on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. That's going to do it for this week's show, so enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I'm your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday. Thursday.